they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we'll build another, not made by man. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony about these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard this blas the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, Prophecy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again he denied it. And a little, after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin reached, reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release you to the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate re release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then? 
with the one you call the King of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away to the palace and called together the whole company of the soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Well, let's um, bow in prayer, shall we? Um, Father in heaven, we want to thank you again for your word. And we pray uh, that as we consider it, that you would help us to focus. Pray that you would be uh, working your word uh, into our minds and our hearts. That uh, we might uh, appreciate and value uh, more of the height and the depth and the width of your love for us that we see in Christ Jesus. And we pray these things in his most precious name. Amen. I wonder if you ever find yourself in a situation where in a weak moment you are tempted to wonder whether or not God is in control. Uh, sometimes in life there are things which happen that can disappoint us. Um, it might be a problem with our health, it might be a family relationship problem, it might be a problem in our job or an opportunity that we've missed. Uh, well, sometimes it's because someone has sinned against us and we're reaping the, the consequences of that. And we can wonder whether or not God is actually in control or what's he doing. I don't know if you've, you've probably experienced this, but uh, very often it's as time passes by that we can look back at that and we can see that uh, in actual fact that God uh, has taken the very thing which we thought was a problem and uh, he's used that to actually benefit us. He's used that for our good. Even sometimes the sinfulness of other people, even sometimes the sin of ourselves, that God has allowed us to go through that so that it's to teach us a lesson and to help us to grow uh, in our godliness. In fact, um, uh, the longer that we live as Christians, the more we realise that throughout the ups and the downs of life that God has not taken his hand off the steering wheel, that God is very, very much uh, in control. And uh, the great passage from Romans 8, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. But sometimes, I mean, when you're in the midst of it, when the, when it, it's really hard to see what is God's purpose in this. In the seeming chaos that's happening in my life, what good could God possibly be bringing about? I think the disciples felt this way. 
Remember a couple of weeks back we looked at the entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, came in riding on the back of a, of a colt and the crowds were out there waiting for him, uh, greeting him and praising him and they laid down the cloaks before him and the palm branches and they you know, said, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed be the coming king. That was a great moment for the disciples, wasn't it? They were on a real high. But then last week came Gethsemane. Last week we looked at uh, the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus praying in anguish and Judas accompanied by Jewish leaders and a detachment of Roman soldiers comes to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is arrested, he's put into custody. And that was, for the disciples, was, it was like their world came crashing down around them. They didn't know what was going on, they didn't know who was in control, and so they fled. They left Jesus, they, they ran in fear of their very lives. I wonder who they thought was in control. Now, as the drama of Jesus in custody unfolds in Mark chapter 14, we're actually told of two stories which are being played out at the same time. Uh, if you open up your Bibles at Mark chapter 14, let me uh, just start with you from verses 53 and 54. Where in verse 53 it says, They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests elders and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Now, what this is doing is it's setting the scene for what, what happens next, because there are, in fact, two men on trial. One of them is Jesus. The other one is Peter. The other one is Peter. And in what follows, what Mark does is that he crosses from one scene to the other scene. He crosses from the trials of Jesus into the trial that was taking place in the courtyard and back to the trial against Jesus. But who was really in control? Well, there are a number of players who uh, would have liked to have been in control. There were some who thought that they were in control. I want us to take, go through that as we look at this uh, passage this morning. First of all, there was the Jewish authorities who would have loved to have been in control. Um, in verses 55 down to verse 65, Jesus is now on trial before the Sanhedrin. Now, uh, what was the Sanhedrin? That's not a term that we use very much, is it? Um, the Sanhedrin was the... It was the ruling council of the Jews uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, it, if you take a look at verse 53, it tells us who made up the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin made up, was made up firstly of the high priest, who was the chairman of the Sanhedrin. Then it was all of the chief priests, and these were the former high priests, like high priests emeritus became the chief priests. Uh, then there was the elders, and they are representatives of influential uh, families in Jerusalem. And there are the teachers of the law. 
So what it tells us is that this is in fact a formal court. Uh, they were meeting in the residence of the uh, chief priest, of the high priest rather, and uh, what they would have done is they would have uh, uh, been sitting uh, in a semicircular kind of fashion. Uh, in the middle there would have been space there for the, um, for the accused and also for witnesses. And on to the left and to the right there would have been clerks who would have been there to take minutes of the proceedings. This is a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin. But it was a sham. Because if you take a look at verse 55, what are they actually doing? In verse 55, what they're in fact doing is that they are simply looking for evidence so that they can do what they've already decided that they're going to do, which is to have Jesus executed. But this was not a kangaroo court. You know what a kangaroo court is, don't you? It's a, a kangaroo court, it's actually not an Australian term, it's an American term. And a kangaroo court is where the court just jumps over, it leaps over due process in order to get to the outcome that's been predetermined. This is not quite a kangaroo court because, uh, and, the, and the Sanhedrin would have loved to have done that by the way, but uh, they were in fact not in complete control. They were controlled by two things. First of all, they were controlled by their own passion to adhere to their own regulations. Um, <clears throat> this is what I mean by that. In order to condemn Jesus to death, uh, they would uh, have to convict him of a capital offence and they would have to do so on the basis of the evidence of two witnesses who agreed with one another. That was what their regulations said. Now, you'd think, well, that shouldn't be too hard. I mean, Jesus had plenty of enemies who'd be quite happy to stand up and take the stand against him and to tell lies about him, make false accusations. That's true enough. But the problem was, and we see it in verse 56, that the Sanhedrin were frustrated because they couldn't find two witnesses who actually you know, got their stories right, who actually said the same thing. Although there was one, uh, one accusation was made. Remember when Jesus and his disciples were walking away from the temple and the disciples said to Jesus, hey, what a great building this is, isn't it fantastic? You know, the Sydney Opera House of the first century. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one stone of this is going to left, be left on, you know, or every stone of this is going to be left on the ground. Remember that? Well, you see, in the Roman Empire, there was one, one offence which was a capital offence was the destruction of a place of worship. And so they thought, we might have him here. Although, did Jesus actually claim that he would destroy the temple? No, he didn't. All he said was that the temple would be destroyed. But never mind uh, th that lie. They fabricated that. They twisted the truth on that. They still had the same problem that they couldn't find two witnesses, even on this capital offence, that actually agreed with one another. They didn't get their stories straight. Actually, it turns out that they didn't need witnesses. Um, because out of frustration, the uh, high priest um, leaps up and he starts interrogating Jesus himself. And in verse 61, he just 
cuts to the chase, he gets to the point. In verse 61, he asks him the question. He says, look, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, that's the right question to ask, isn't it? Because that's the real issue here. And have a look at what happens next. In verse 62, in verse 62, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I am. In fact, more than that, he goes on and he elaborates. He says to the high priest, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see, about 500 or so years earlier, Daniel. Remember Daniel? Uh, He was a Jew living in exile uh, in Babylon. And Daniel had some colourful dreams, didn't he? And one of the colourful dreams that he had was in Daniel chapter 7 where he saw a picture of heaven. It was a great picture. He describes it as being a picture of uh, God the Father, the Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne in heaven, surrounded by thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000 of angels that are, that are worshipping him. And then he goes on in his vision. And the passage I've printed for you on your service sheets there in Daniel chapter 7, he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. On trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus says to the high priest, that's me, that's me. It's no wonder that the, the high priest uh, tore his clothes in anger, in frustration, in, and he turned to the whole of the Sanhedrin and he says, well, we don't need any witnesses. We are all witnesses. We've all just heard what he's just said because what he's just said is that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And so he was found guilty found guilty on a charge which was a Jewish charge, which was the charge of blasphemy. And that under Jewish law was a capital offence. But the problem was this. They were not in control. Because who was in control of Judea? It wasn't the Jews, it was the the Romans. And and friends, uh, in, in the Roman Empire... The Roman Empire was very, very large and it covered uh, many, many provinces and many different races of people, many groups of people. At the height of the Roman Empire, it had a population of 50 million people. And the Romans, the way that they governed was to give a certain amount of liberty to the locals to, to, to run their own show. But one area where they did not give liberty was the area of capital punishment. Because this power, this authority over life and death is ultimate authority, right? And so in order to make it clear who was boss, the Romans reserved that ultimate authority over life and death 
for themselves. When the Jewish leaders stoned Stephen to death, that was illegal. That was a lynch mob. But these guys, the Sanhedrin, are doing things by the book. And so the Sanhedrin would therefore have to now send Jesus to a court of the Roman governor. Not on the religious charge of blasphemy, but on a Roman charge. And the Roman charge was, of course, that he claimed that he was the king. Daniel chapter 7, the king of an everlasting kingdom. That is a charge which I think these days you'd call it high treason, wouldn't you? A charge of high treason, a capital offence under Roman law. Now, while all of this is going on inside the chief priests, uh, res- the high priest's residence, there was another trial which was taking place outside. Uh, in verses 66 through to 72, the story now switches to the courtyard, uh, just outside where the Sanhedrin was in session. And this was a late night session, by the way. There's a reason for that. Uh, the reason is this, that um, <clears throat> Roman governors, their working day started at sunrise. And the first item on the agenda for a Roman governor was his role as magistrate. It was to see, uh, to, to hear legal cases. And the reason they did that was they just wanted to get all the legal cases out of the road so they could spend the rest of the day living the life of a Roman gentleman. Uh, that was the way that they did it. And so this is a late night session. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 um, the Sanhedrin was going to have to have a case ready to be presented before sunrise. And so everybody is working late. This is an all-nighter. And so outside, there's all of the servants are milling around. They're waiting around outside around the fire for this session of the Sanhedrin to be finished. Now, to some extent, it's a surprise to see Peter there. I mean, all of the other disciples, they're all, they've all shot through in fear of their lives. And early on that night, when uh, Jesus had said that everyone was going to desert him, and Peter said, no, no, I'll never desert you, Lord, Jesus had said to him that before the rooster crows twice, that Peter would disown Jesus three times. And so we're kind of half not expecting Peter to be there, but he kind of half did stick with Jesus. He didn't kind of stand alongside Jesus, but he followed him. But now Peter is on trial. It's less formal. Verse 66 says, a young girl, she's a servant of the high priest, and she recognises him. She's maybe seen Jesus before and seen Peter and the other disciples, and she recognised him as being a disciple of Jesus. But he denied it. He said, oh, I don't understand. I don't know what you're talking about. In verse 70, he denied it again. And then he went on in verse 70, because in verse 70, there's a, after a little while, it says that the, those who were standing near said to people, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. See, they would have, as soon as he opens his mouth... He's got a Galilean accent and he's speaking in a Galilean dialect which is just slightly different. And he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. 
Now, that is a black moment. That is a dark moment because, because Peter can't even bring himself to use the name of Jesus, can he? This man, I don't know this man that you're talking about. It's a black moment. Peter disowns Jesus in order to spare himself in violation of what Jesus had earlier said that any man who is ashamed of me, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. Um, who, who does Peter think is in control? Certainly not God at this point. Now, the Roman governor at the time was named Pilate and Pilate would have loved to have been in control. Pilate actually despised the Jews. But he knew that he wasn't in control. Pilate was controlled by fear. You see, Pilate also had a boss. Uh, he lived in Rome and his name was Tiberius Caesar. And uh, Caesar took a special interest in the, the little province of Judea. Uh, the reason was this, that uh, there, was, there were certain provinces that were controlled directly by the Caesar, by the emperor, uh, rather than by the senate. And it was because they were either strategic provinces or they were troublesome provinces. Now, which one do you reckon Judea was? Troublesome, because it's populated by these Jews who've got this strange idea that God actually gave them this land and they're not budging <laughs> So it was a troublesome uh, province. It was controlled directly by Caesar who had put in place Pilate. And so a rebellion in Judea would not have been all that great for Pilate's career prospects. In fact, he had a, a mate of his who was a mentor who had just recently uh, 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 got the disapproval of Caesar and he was executed. I reckon that Pilate might have preferred to have stayed in bed this morning because when he started work that day, he was confronted with something which put him in a tight spot politically for two reasons. First of all, the Sanhedrin would have come to him with paperwork which was a formal charge of, um, uh, of treason against, against Jesus um, Pilate knew that it was all rubbish. You see that in verse 10. He knew it was just out of envy that they were doing this. But still, it was an accusation of high treason and if he did not deal with it, then his boss in Rome would not be very happy. That's his first problem. His second problem is this, that at the Passover, it was the custom for the governor to release a prisoner out of mercy. It could be a prisoner who had not yet been convicted or it could be a prisoner who had already been convicted. Uh, we see this in verses 6 to 8, if you have a look at chapter 15. In verse 6, Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested, a man called Barabbas. Uh, by the way, that, um, that means son of the father. Bar means son. Abba, in Aramaic, is father. So... Was a man called Son of the Father who was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising and the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. So, here's a man, Barabbas, 
he has actually been involved in an actual rebellion against the Romans. And this morning it seems that his supporters have turned up uh, on this day to ask for his release. This too would not please Caesar in Rome. So what does Pilate do? He hands over control to the crowd. He asks the crowd, well, who should I release? And the choice between these two saviours would have been easy for the crowd uh, because you've got Barabbas who actually had risen up, who actually had fought against the Romans, who actually had killed some Romans in the process. Or you've got Jesus who had allowed himself to be arrested without even putting up a fight. Now, who's the crowd going to choose? Who's in control? It looks like it's the crowd that's in control. As Pilate released Barabbas, what did that mean for Jesus? Well, Jesus was then stripped naked and they, they whipped him. They, they flogged him with a, what's called a flagellum. It's a, it's a leather whip and it's plated with, um, uh, with, uh, <clears throat> uh, with, with hard material. It's plated with, with either bone or with lead. And he would have been forced to the ground. There is no limit on the number of times he could have been uh, whipped. But with this plated flagellum, they, they whipped him and they would have whipped him until such time as his flesh, his, his, his bleeding flesh, his bloody flesh was just torn off uh, in strips. That's what they did. Pilate, in handing Jesus over to be crucified, what's implied in that is that he had executed his judgment and he had found Jesus to be guilty, even though he knew he wasn't guilty. The soldiers, we're told, then took him away and they mocked him. They ridiculed him. He doesn't have his clothes on and they've, they've gotten hold of a, an old purple robe and they've wrapped it around him. They've twisted together a crown which they've made out of thorns and they've whacked that on his head and, they've, and then they've fallen down prostrate in front of him on their knees and they've said, Hail the King of the Jews. As they bashed him up and spat on him. So who's in control? Is it the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law? Well, yeah, they, this is the moment they'd been plotting for. Is it the Romans? Well, they were enjoying this moment as they were able to humiliate the so-called king of the Jews. And below the surface, Satan thought that this was his hour. Satan thought that this was his moment, that this was his victory as God the Son 
was now about to head to a death on a cross where he, in accordance with Deuteronomy, he who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. But who was really in control? On trial before the Sanhedrin, Jesus did not dignify their accusations with a response. On trial before Pilate, Pilate was amazed because Jesus refused to defend himself even though his very life was on the balance. And in the cold air of the courtyard, when Peter disowned Jesus, a rooster crowed for the second time. And we're told that at that very moment that Peter broke down in tears, that Peter broke down in tears of anguish as it dawned on him as he awoke from what he'd been doing and he realised that this was all playing out exactly as Jesus had said that it would. So who's in control? In the Old Testament, in Psalm 2, Psalm 2 verse 1, it starts off, by saying that the kings, the rulers of the world, conspired together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The prophet Isaiah spoke of the suffering servant who would be despised and rejected by men. Jesus himself, in Mark 8, had said that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after, after three days rise again. So who really was in control? Sounds a bit like Jesus was in control, doesn't it? Sounds a bit like God the Father and God the Son. It sounds like it sounds like God, in his superior wisdom and in his sovereign power, was actually using the sinfulness of wicked men, that he was actually using the evil trickery of Satan to actually bring about his good plan and his purpose. That Jesus, as we'll see next week, that Jesus paid the penalty for sin, your sin and mine, by his death on the cross. His death, which brings forgiveness and changes lives. Lives such as Peter's life. Peter, the one who denied that he even knew him, the one who couldn't even bring himself to use his name, Peter, who having witnessed the resurrection of Jesus and having witnessed the rising again of Jesus to the Father, and that is the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days in the clouds. In Acts chapter 4, Peter found himself on trial again, this time not outside in the courtyard, being tried by public opinion but this time inside the building 
in front of the Sanhedrin themselves. And this time, there was no denial. This time, there was no fear. This time, there was no uncertainty about who truly was in control. As he turned to the Sanhedrin, as he stared them down, as he said to them clearly, he said to them, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. It's a wonderful change in Peter, isn't it? It's the change that comes about by the forgiveness of the death of Christ on the cross and the new life, the changed life, through his resurrection. We're going to be looking more at that next Sunday. So uh, let's just bow in prayer now. Father, we thank you for the uh, way that you are at work sovereignly in the affairs of men, that uh, under the surface that you are, your plan will never be thwarted, that indeed that you use the sinfulness of men to bring about your purposes. We thank you that Jesus was indeed the suffering servant, that he was obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that the power that Satan had over us, the accusing finger that says that you're a sinner going to hell, has been taken away. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.